You're listening to Biz Souls, the business podcast with an edge, hosted by me, Rona Lewis, and Jeffrey Hansler. Tune in for perspectives and discoveries about the changing world of business. It's time to connect to the heart, soul, and humor of how business gets done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biz Souls. I'm Rona Lewis. I'm Jeffrey Hansler. And you want to say the tagline? Where we get to the heart and soul of business and the people that make it happen. And today, we're talking, we're whining. We're whining with the wine people. (laughs) Today, we have some very dear friends of mine, Lynn and Craig Boggs from Whisper Wine Company. We're going to talk about the business of wine. I am a big wine fan. I have taken wine tasting classes. Well, I'm Jewish. It comes by my (laughs) with it easily. (laughs) I'm going to go to Miami. I'm going to go to Miami. Yes. All right. right. Um, So a little bit about Lynn and Craig Boggs. They're the owners of Whisper Wine Company. Uh, They produce wine from Santa Barbara up through Napa, and their brands include Row 11 Pinot Noirs, The Riddler, Napa Red, and William Hall Napa Cabernet. 90% of their wines are sold in restaurants, hotels, resorts, and country clubs across the country. These small business owners have had their share of ups and downs in the wine business, and they're here to share their story with us. Welcome, guys. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having us. Of course. Of course. I um, I think about you guys all the time. I mean, Lynn, Lynn and I have known each other for more years over than... For, over 40 years. Over 40 which years, is which is amazing because this, this is Los Angeles. It's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Because no one in LA is over 40. So we've known each other since we were in the womb. <laughs> so where did you guys meet? You uh, meet? We went to Penn State together. Um, your favorite college. <laughs> He's been up there a couple of times, and literally, you said it, you, you've literally, gotten nauseous. I get physically sick every time I show up because it's I've, in I've the mountains. Been at two oh, conventions. Wow. It has nothing to do with the mountains or anything else. It's just that he doesn't I like get the a bad vibe from it. <laughs> well, we had we were in uh, McElwain Hall. Did you go to Michigan? Together. Is that why? No, <laughs> very nice. <laughs> no, no, no. It has nothing to do with school rivalry or anything. It's just uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But yeah, so Lenny and I have known each other for a really long time. She used to come to my house for, what, thank, Thanksgiving and, and I holidays? I was there for some stuff. Thanksgivings. I was there over some uh, Christmas some spring breaks. Spring break, yeah. I was the I was the adopted Catholic uh, child. Right, there. right, <laughs> which was hysterical. Quick story. We were out shopping. Do you remember the story? And I was trying something on with, with my mom, and Linny is there sitting next to my dad, and the saleswoman looks at the two and says, if there ever was a father and daughter, and I'm like... What? Hey, what? <laughs> it was very funny. You did kind of look a little like my dad, actually. I've known him for like five minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. So we had we had fun anyway. So. All right. We digress. So let's talk a little bit about the wine business. How did you guys get into this business in in the first place because Lynn I know that wasn't certainly your your major when you were in school. 
No, I'm, I'm a hotel restaurant management person uh, at Penn State. So, no, that was never my plan. But Craig actually enters. I'll let Craig tell that story. Okay. Donna did not have a wine background in the beginning. Um, I, my major was even less related to the industry. It was political science. And I was, Perfect. Went into the Marine, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and went into the Marine Corps. But I uh, ended up getting a job with Nestle Foods after uh, getting out of the Marine Corps and then uh, was recruited um, uh, by a uh, headhunter who was working on a project for Gallo at the time and ended up uh, coming into the wine business, uh, not being much of a wine drinker. When was that? In 1988? 89. Chrissy was two weeks old. Chrissy was two weeks old. Our oldest child was two weeks old when Craig started with Gallo. So she's 34. Yeah. The corporate sales side with Gallo managing distributors in the Mid-Atlantic region. And then eventually left Gallo and went to work for a subsidiary of Pepsi called Monsieur Henri, which was the importer at the time of Stoli Vodka and uh, a range of German wines and small uh, French producers, as well as a range of uh, Premier Burgundies from a, a negotiation called Boise. Wow. And that's really where we delved deeper into wine. And then in 1994, this is a lifetime ago, uh, we jumped out on our own and opened an import company uh, working with family-run, predominantly family-owned and run uh, drinks producers, uh, wines, spirits, uh, beers from Belgium and England. And we ended up selling that business in 2000. And then in 2004, we were introduced to a well-known winemaker among winemakers, not really among the drinking public. And uh, he was off on a venture focusing primarily on Pinot Noir from various vineyards in California called and he had a brand name called Row 11. And in 2005, we invested in, in the company and, and took over the, the sales and distribution in the U.S. And then in 2019, we bought everyone out, went off on our own just in time for the pandemic. There so, you go. So did you, when did Whisper Wine Company, when when did that name come in? And how, where'd you get that from? The registered corporate name is Whisper Imports. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we sold our import company in 2000, we maintained the licenses, state and, that, and federal licenses necessary to continue to work in the alcohol business. Uh, and that was owned by Len and uh, a former associate who worked with us uh, and, his, and his wife. And it was a dormant company, I guess, Lynn, what, since 2004. Yeah, um, for a long, yeah, for a long time. And when, when we decided to buy out our partners in the fall, we needed to have, we needed to have a, a going concern. Yeah. And it would have taken us months to start something up. So I said to Craig, is Whisper still alive? So we did a search and, and it was still viable. It's like, okay, well, Whisper, Whisper it is. So it was really kind so of everybody talks like but... this all the time. We have to talk like this. <laughs> we have to talk like this. We have to whisper. Well, the, the, the truth is the, uh, the partner that we had in Whisper Imports was a super loud New Yorker. Oh, and I don't said, know what that's do, like. <laughs> let's do something. Let's do something a little bit more subdued. And it was his idea oh, that's to hysterical. do Whisper Imports. So that's, that's where the name Whisper came from. That is funny. So, Craig, uh, going back a little bit. So, you, how'd you get with Nestle? Where'd you start off with? Were you in operations uh, or were you in sales? In sales. That's how Lynn and I met, actually. Uh, she worked for Kraft and I was running a sales territory about to be promoted to a division manager to kind of turn it around. And th- it, it was interesting. Nestle at the time, the, the big focus for what they called junior officers out, out of the military, uh, P&G had a, a long-running program where they tried to recruit 
recruit JMOs, junior military officers, and, and then the VP of marketing and, and sales at, at Nestle was a former uh, Naval Academy grad, and he liked the model that P&G established. So I was their first junior military officer hired, come on board. And uh, Lynn and I literally met in the aisle of a grocery store in a really... I remember uh, that. Yeah. Very nice part of... Uh, suburb of uh, Philadelphia. And, uh, and we, they literally picked me up in a grocery store. <laughs> in the candy aisle. In the candy aisle. There we go. Because she's so sweet. Price check. <laughs> Price check. <laughs> aisle nine. Yeah. Price check. If you knew she was that expensive. there. <laughs> That's Truth is, I ran into her uh, a couple times before at uh, what they call resets, where the, the manufacturer reps have to go in and move product because the the grocery chain has decided that the layout of the store needs to be revamped. Huh? And uh, she ignored me both times when I, I literally threw myself in front of her and <laughs> walked on by. Lenny, he's, he's kind of hard to miss. What are you, six? Are, are you, are you six I said, four? Did I, say, did I say hello to you? And he says, you said hello, but like, that's all you did. <laughs> like, okay. Kept walking. <laughs> Talk to the hands. And I, and, I, and I have to say, I was in pretty good shape back then. I was, you know, still at the gym at 4 a.m. every day. <laughs> well, we've been married for 35 years, so, yeah, you know. Excellent. Here we are. I can't believe it. God, and then why that. the switch to Gallo from Nestle? You, you're, I mean, Gallo is a big company, but nothing like Nestle. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, without you know, casting aspersions, uh, I got promoted pretty quickly and was you know, or most of my compensation or a huge percentage of it was, was bonus related on performance. This is at Nestle? Um, at Nestle, okay. yeah. And, and, and we were a young, struggling family. I turned the, uh, you know, not single-handedly, but I turned around a, a, a division that hadn't made bonus in 10 years. Revamped, got rid of a lot, tried, place, update, update the uh, sales team. Uh, Nestle was, you know, obviously a global conglomerate, not as big as they are today. And they were in the middle of a lot of acquisitions, but they weren't absorbing. The, there was a, a holding company called Nestle Enterprises based out in, um, in Cincinnati. Uh, and they, they owned everything from, at the time, Stouffer Hotels, which they eventually spun off to, to Marriott, which is Renaissance now. Mm -hmm. uh, they owned Stouffer Foods. They owned uh, Libby. They owned um, Carnation. I was with Nestle, you know, the uh, Nestle's Crunch and Toll House Morsel Company, right? And, and, uh, and, and Taster's Choice. And we were competing <laughs> with a lot of the companies that Nestle acquired. And you know, one one quarter, uh, the marketing department pulled a lot of support that was promised to us. And uh, you know, because they were compensated on profit, I was compensated and my team was were compensated on sales performance. And it had a detrimental effect to our performance. They, they pulled things that we had sold into our grocery chains as activity that marketing activity was going to happen. And, and I called corporate up pretty angry that you know you committed to this and now you're pulling it from us yeah. and, and these are tools that we used and so being an ex-marine I was do what you, you know, say what you're going to do and do what you say you right. kind of flew in the face of you know what I thought was appropriate business strategy so I got a phone call at the right time and was like okay I'm out of here right there so. you go Opportunity knocks. Excellent. Awesome. So did you become more of a wine drinker after you went to Gallo? Yes. No. <laughs> Lydia's going, uh -uh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, not really I'm, we, we didn't leap you know, head first into the wine business from a consumption standpoint. Speaking, frankly, at the time, Gallo's focus, they were in, they, we joined Gallo at a point of transition for the company. Mm -hmm. You know, the industry, which I, I learned at that time, I didn't know going into it, had was predominantly jug wine. I mean, right. if you look yeah, at it. Yeah, it, it did not have a reputation as, you know, fine dining well, you know, accompaniment. But, but, <laughs> 
But, but, but the interesting thing is Gallo made great wine at a value and they have to be acknowledged as the, as the company that brought Americans into table wine consumption. Yeah. Well, it's like it was like that generation's two buck chuck well, sort of thing. Yes. But, you know, what's interesting was the transition. Like a lot of people don't know this, but our parents' generation, if they drank wine, my parents didn't. I mean, wine at our house was cold duck at Thanksgiving, I think. And, <laughs> uh, so, but otherwise, it was bourbon and beer. Right. In the 70s, wine consumption in the U.S. was what we call fortified wines and sherry and, yeah. and port. Mm-hmm. Now, not traditional port from Porto, but domestic right. port, which is a fortified, you know, t- you know, wine, basically red wine, you know, with with a with brandy in it. Yeah. And then and then the sherry wasn't traditional sherry from like Jerez, Spain, where you know they it's aged in barrel. What they do is you know an in, our industry term it's not very eloquent, but it's it's you burn the wine. Oh, that you, sounds so appetizing. <laughs> but that's what they drank. Lynn's parents, you know, they drank. But you know, gallon Gallop jugs. Gallop pale dry of, sherry uh, in a gallon. Yeah, like broken glass. And, and people, <laughs> people hear uh, brands like Ripple, Thunderbird, yeah. uh, Night Train. Oh. They, they think of I remember as, those. Well, they think of these as, as you know, urban decay, you know, wines consumed. Right, winos. Winos on the yeah. side of the right. street. Right. The reality was they were targeted at young middle class you know, white people. And that was what they drank. Gallo has an archive, which is really interesting, of, of TV ads for Thunderbird with Cesar Romero, who was a TV star at, yeah. the, at the time when we ran. It, it was in, and then they incorporated housewives, like essentially like the, the, the homes and the women in the dressed like you would see back in Bewitched or whatever. And, and that that's where we came from. I yeah. mean, that's where the consumption was in the 70s, was all high proof fortified wines. And, and it wasn't winos drinking this stuff. And then Gallo transitioned them to table wines to, you know, with Chablis and, and Burgundy, which they, they weren't related at all to their namesakes. But, you know, they moved us into, you know, and, and I joined Gallo at the next transition, which was moving from jug wine to varietally des- designated wines. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, and then now they, you know, they're the, by far the largest wine producer in the in the world and, right. and in the U.S., but they, they are making major players in fine wine today. Right. Yeah. My dad all my dad always had a that gallon jug of burgundy gallon. Oh, yeah. So, so Gallo, know, that would last I, a couple of weeks. I joined right in that transition and Gallo had just made the decision to get out of gallon jugs of, of wine. My New York distributor, they lost half their business when Gallo like discontinued it. Huh. Like at that point in time, the wine business wasn't growing. The wine business is kind of like a you know roller coaster. It's right. up and it's down. Mm. But Gallo literally moved out of the jug business and the New York State distributor, the, there were two at the time, literally that was half their business just got wiped out by a company decision. Yeah. Wow. So, well, so so let's let's transition to your business, um, which you you said really was yay we have our own business and now there's a worldwide pandemic you were i mean how did you guys deal with that because you were basically selling to restaurants and and hotels and that sort of thing right what did you do had you know it must have been a real shock and so what happened well, i mean like all businesses that were shut down the millions of businesses that were shut down you know, we were hopeful in the beginning that it just wasn't going to last forever. Right. You know, 
And even though it didn't last forever, the, the aftermath uh, took a long time. It took yeah. a long time for people to get well, yeah, we're, we're still yeah. doing it. Yeah. The aftermath uh, of people being afraid to come out mm-hmm. and the restrictions on the restaurants and, and all these public places just put a lot of constraints on, on what we could do. And a lot of people had inventory when the shutdown came. Right. So they when they came back online, when they came back online, they decided to put out a tighter menu. Mm-hmm. So whatever they, they had on their on their wine menu, they were going to offer less mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't have cash. Right. So they had inventory issues because they really had to pick and choose what they were going to put on their menus. So a lot of them were running through inventory they already had at the when the shutdown came. Sure. So they had a back room full of wine. They said, mm-hmm. I don't need anything right now. I'm running through what I'm trying to get rid of the stuff that I already owned. Yeah. So initially that that was really hard for us. And of course, you know, after that, the uh, the shipping issues, you know, just about all the glass in the world's made in China. Oh. And uh, so there was, you know, problems getting bottles and uh, exorbitant uh, over the ocean fees on top of our bottle prices. We're we're still we're still dealing with the aftermath. So are you? Are, and of course, now you, we have the economies. Is, like what else? But you know, when we first when we first uh, did this, I mean, it was. It was terrifying. Something we well, would never, we would never, have, you know, taken over the business from our partners at the end of 2019. Had you know, we known there'd be a global pandemic, but I mean, you know, well, nobody who's did. Thinking, yeah. Who's thinking global pandemic? Right, because you know? <laughs> it happened so often. <laughs> right. You know, the big issue that we we had, you know, we we built this business you know, since 2005 mm-hmm. um, through chef-driven restaurants, you right. know, luxury resorts, you know, premier, premier golf resorts, country clubs. And the only thing that stayed open effectively when the pandemic hit in full, full force in March uh, and the world shut down uh, were the country clubs because they were, you know, a refuge, if you will. Yeah, everybody yeah. was outside playing golf. And they were, they could go back into their gated community and pretend nothing's going on out, you know, inside. That's a good point. And, and, and that's what happened. I mean, we, we barely survived three from 3.2 million to 400,000 in revenue overnight wow. thanks to the, the decision of the government and you know we're not the only one it happened of course to right a zillion players yeah what's been interesting in terms of the recovery and post-pandemic is there's as lynn said there's all sorts of legacy effects one that you know, everybody's heard about the supply chain but it's broken and yeah. you know right. we, we had to move quickly to find other glass suppliers you, you know you don't buy wine bottles directly from the glass manufacturer there uh, unless you're gallo who has their own glass plant on their at their primary at their headquarters where mm-hmm. it you know, runs 24 hours a day and produce all their own glass uh, everybody else is is dealing with a broker uh, and then there's a handful of brokers that deal in glass and everybody scrambled at the same time where as Lynn said all the all the manufacturing not all but a huge percentage got pushed over overseas you know we've we've made a conscious effort to redirect where our glass comes from we've made a conscious effort to to reduce our footprint in the process or we've gone to lighter bottles where historically the industry the heavier the bottle uh the more premium the right. product was which right. is a lie um it's just a marketing gimmick um right. so we our, our largest selling wine uh is is our Venus Three Pinot Noir? It, we went to a lighter glass, a smaller glass produced here in the U.S., and, and as a result, reduced our carbon footprint by 33%. We you know, we lowered the the grams of glass by 25% in the transition, and what that allows us to do is to put more cases on a pallet. All right, so we we put a third more cases on the same pallet. When a truck full of wine goes across the country to from our 
facility to our distributors, that truck does what the industry calls uh, wait out before it cubes out. So you don't, you never fill the container fully because it, otherwise, if you did, it would be overweight to go on U.S. roads. Right. So by lowering the weight in the glass, we one improved our carbon footprint, and two, we can get more on the truck. Saves you money. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. That's awesome. How did you? Um, why did you decide to target restaurants? <laughs> Um, so, he is not so, drinking, does he? No, no. I, uh, sorry, I was just a little. Well, the, you know, the majority, 60% of wine in the U retail wine is sold through chain stores, you know, depending on where you live. Vaughn's, Safeway, mm-hmm. Kroger, Albertsons. As you move east, when you get outside of the southeast predominantly, and it's primarily independent liquor stores, wine and spirit stores that, that you sell to. To get in the grocery chains, you have to have something marketing-wise that's intriguing to them. And we, when at the start, didn't have anything that was very appealing. They're dominated by Gallo and by, you know, the, the top five producers. The chains are. And, and my our partner at the time, Richard, the our winemaker, had a great reputation among because of his background among winemakers, but he wasn't known to the consumer-facing side. Mm-hmm. He wasn't known by the distributors. He wasn't known by, you know, wine connoisseurs or whatever, but he was a fantastic and is a fantastic winemaker. So I wrote the business plan to go after resort towns, Vegas, Miami, Arizona, Scottsdale area, and to develop it there in places where people visit and then take it, their introduction to the wine back home with them. And we started banging on, I started banging on restaurant doors. And <laughs> our first big hit in terms of uh, celebrity chefs was a guy named uh, Norman Van Aken, who at the time was, he was one of America's first globally recognized chefs and you know, celebrity. And, and Norman literally became a calling card for us. We actually, um, I told the story last week, uh, or this earlier. We were in South Carolina. I tell the same story. <laughs> yeah, and, and when I had, Lynn had never been to Charleston or had never been to South Carolina, and, and I was in fact, this is going back 2006, 2005. Trying to, 2005, trying to get into South Carolina, and the distributor that we wanted to partner with, the wine director wouldn't take, wouldn't talk to us. You know, he wouldn't hmm. talk to me at all. He'd just say, "Send me your FOB, which is your price to your distributor." Right. And I would send that to him, and, and then three months later, call and say, "Look, I, let me bring you one. I'll fly down and meet with you because I'm not going to spend your money. Just send me your FOB sheet." So after the third time, it's like won't reference his name, but it's like I sent this to you, you know, three different times. Because you know? is it because you are a Yankee? <laughs> It, it was because it wasn't a new widget. You know, I, yeah. I had we had Russian River Pinot, we had Santa Maria Valley Pinot. He had those covered. Every uh. distributor had. There were six thousand wineries in two thousand and nine in the U.S. Now there's eleven thousand. Wow. Okay. Every distributor has every single area covered. Right. Every varietal, every growing region for that same varietal, they have it right. Uh, and and winemaking has improved tremendously over the last thirty years. Making good wine is not the hard part. Yeah. Okay. It's the differentiating yourself, your wine, your product from all the others. My response to, he's a friend now, my response to Gil was, look, uh, we got invited to the Hilton Head Wine Fest. The, to be there, you have to be under a tent that's controlled, if you will, or by a local distributor. So my wife's never been to South Carolina. She's never been to Charleston. She's never been to Hilton Head. We're going to go to Charleston on Monday, and the Wine Fest is on Saturday. We'll make our way to Hilton Head on Friday. I'm sending you wine. You're going to give us part of a table or a whole table at Hilton Head Wine Fest. We're going to go to Charleston, and uh, 
these are the top five restaurants in Charleston at the time, which, and I guarantee you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get, we will get a scout from, uh, for all five of those. And if I get all five to bring in our wine, you're bringing in our wine and you're going to sell it statewide. And that's that. And we went down and really drank our heads off on Monday, went to dinner that night, carried two bottles of wine in a, in a shoe bag from apparently a very famous shoe store in, in Charleston, in, where Lynn made me buy a pair of shoes that were three times the price of any shoes I'd ever purchased in my life. Good for you, Lynn. He still has them. They're gorgeous. Good. Well, that's, you know. We walked, we walked in with the wine, <laughs> two bottles of wine in a bag, a shoe bag, and the, the wine buyer said, oh, you brought me shoes. And I said, well, they're on my feet. He goes, they're really good shoes. <laughs> Uh, I just didn't want to walk in with a wine bag and, and be presumptuous. But and he asked us who 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 sells your wine that I would know. And we said nobody in Charleston. You could be the first. He goes, who in the U.S. sells your wine? I said, uh, well, Norman Van Aken. And he goes, you know Norman? And I said, well, I've met him. I wouldn't say I know him. And he, as it turns out, worked alongside Norman and a very famous chef who passed Charlie Trotter. And, and, oh, I, and, uh, I know of Charlie and, Trotter, and, sure. Yeah, in Key West. And so he, this is going back to flip phone days. He opens his flip phone and he calls Norman while we're standing there. And he goes, you know this guy, Craig Boggs, and, and his wine, Row 11? And Norman goes, yeah, he makes great shit. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, there you so go. I, I, I appreciate his chutzpah doing that yeah, yeah i mean when when we tell people that you know here we are standing and it's in the middle of service it's like 6 30 in the evening there's people all over the place and we're standing in the bar and he literally pulls out his flip phone like who's got norman van aiken and, and we didn't know he was trained by charlie trotter charlie trotter was trained no, by no, him norman, was... trained, norman trained charlie right. and, and, he and, trained, and charlie and trained the... dennis and, and you know, who's, wow. talk about calling your bluff. Who pulls out a flip phone and calls Norman Van Aken? Right. Yeah, teaching not to lie. That's for sure. Teaching not to lie is right. That's so. right. That's awesome. So he, we got the show table at the restaurant, and he, he tasted the two wines and put them on his list. And Fantastic. We knocked down the, you know, there's nothing like success to give you confidence. So right. we knocked down the other four restaurants, much to the ire of, uh, of the wine director in South Carolina for our distributor at the time. And he had to bring us in. And within two years, we were the number one on-premise restaurant is on premise. You drink the wine yeah. on the premises. Uh, we were their, their number one portfolio two years later, and, and then he became my best friend. Wow, that's nice. That's great. Well, you know, it just goes to show that that sometimes being a small business makes more sense than being a conglomerate because you really get that humanistic side of the the business in there. See, yeah. I read it differently. I, I read it as it's a sales challenge. And that's somebody that you've got confidence in your skills to go in there and sell it. First of all, you've got more work selling to the individuals. It's a huge thing. And then to convince them and to plant the flag and say, okay, this is the way we're going to do it. Otherwise, they just put you off. So that's great right. sales skills. That is great. Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that. I, that I know. Have it, but, I, I, and, yeah. yeah I, He's a he's He's a specialist in in sales. That's his thing. So that's he's just he, great. He gets, yeah. So let's. Well, the only person that's outsold me is my wife. So. <laughs> well, she's good. She's hey, you good. sold her on you. So, there you, you go. Know, that, that's that, the biggest that was one. Was a deal. There you go. Yeah, Craig asked me to marry him four months after we met, and on my 26th birthday on a Wednesday, and wanted to get married that Saturday. <laughs> like whoa i said well i need more time to have a next saturday I was like, <laughs> jeez craig i thought i was pushy yikes <laughs> Good job. so let's um so what made you decide to stick with 
red wines as opposed to going to to white or you know whatever well we actually when when uh we were part of the row 11 wine company we actually had two white wines we had a white blend Mm -hmm. which are really not as popular as as red blends and we made an absolutely delicious unoaked chardonnay Mm -hmm. unfortunately uh, the American profile for Chardonnay is not unoaked. Americans yeah, they like generally the like a, an oaky, buttery Chardonnay. So um, the people who loved it loved which, which, it. Which, by the way, doesn't go with anything. I'm not a was. fan of oaky Chardonnay so, at all. But, but you know what? The people are. Uh, yeah. The people are. So even though um, the people who loved our Chardonnay really loved it, we just needed more of them. Right. So, you know, when we when we took over the company back in 2019, we had plans to to move on to a white and then the shutdown came. Yeah. So like so many things for so many people, you know, a lot of it's just a function of, you know, cash flow and things like that. So right. we we concentrated been concentrating on our on our reds. Right. Um, still thinking about a probably a barrel fermented uh, Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we, yeah, we, so. We've experimented and we will at some point achieve the profile we want and then then we'll have one. Then we'll work on we'll, it, yeah. We'll release yeah. it. So are you are you still focusing on a B2B or are you, because I know I've, I get wine from you online. So what's your percentage of, you know, since the pandemic, have, has it changed in, in terms of B2C and B2B? On the on the DTC side, it, it's not wait, a significant wait, wait, wait. part of Direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. Okay. So, so we really haven't really impacted our business significantly yet, mostly because the fulfillment piece mm-hmm. uh, became an issue for us. Like most other wineries, we use a fulfillment right. company. Right. And the, the problem with that is the most important part after the interaction with the consumer in terms of the, getting the sale, mm-hmm. it then is in 100% in the hands of the fulfillment company. Right. They actually are the part that does the, the, the transaction. The, you go to our website and it's not just ours. I'm going to, let's call it the royal us or we. Or yeah. The majority use a, a third party fulfillment. So the, when the transaction occurs, it, it occurs on their, on a subdomain of of the winery website right. that is controlled by that third party, right? So they collect the money, they do the retail transaction, then they have to do the fulfillment. And and we had a number of issues, particularly in 2020 when we when we launched. The fulfillment company was letting or letting the customer down. Well, the customer they, they view the relationship with the winery, right? Not with the fulfillment company. Right. So we've treaded very lightly. We have to have wine available for purchase on our website. We don't push. Right. right? It's not we a big part of that. Yeah. We don't actively market it right now yeah. until we're comfortable with that we've got the right third party fulfillment. Because when you, you know, Amazon has you know, changed the world in terms of expectation for right. direct to consumer purchase. Yeah, right? it doesn't. It, you're right. not going to get wine overnight. No. <laughs> and then on top of that, yeah, that, that that's the bottom line. Yeah. And then how long it takes them to pack and you know pick pack and ship we call it right right if your expectations as the consumer if it takes a week for you to get your bottle of wine or case of wine you're you're, you're not very happy right we have an amazon fulfillment center probably 40 minutes from our home and there's things i could get on right now and if you know, purchase within two hours and i'll have it today right that just doesn't happen well, and, and, and our business is super highly regulated in, in terms of right. you know, 
Well, I think people who who do, most people who who get one, at least in my experience, understand that it's not, oh, I'm having a party tomorrow. Let me order a case of good quality wine now and and have it tomorrow. You know, for me, uh, when I've ordered for myself and other people, I know it's, you know, it's it will take a week or 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 two to get there, depending on where the fulfillment is and what part of the country and all that, you know, because I had ordered a bunch for my uh, brother's 70th birthday. I did not order 70 bottles of wine. Unfortunately, I don't have that much, (laughs) but I ordered a lot for him and he loved them. And so, you know, yeah, so I just wanted to make sure that there was plenty of time and it was it was absolutely fine. And, you know, I think experienced wine drinkers know that. And, and for those of you who aren't, now you know, you know. So when you go on the Whisper Wine Co. Um, website and order their wine, which is delicious, you know what to expect. So what... Well, and the, go ahead, I was going to say, and the farther away you are from California, because our fulfillment is in California, yeah. the farther away you are, the longer it takes. So it's going to take you a lot less time to get it in Arizona than it is to get it in New York. It right. literally has to travel across the country. It's just not, it's not like throwing something in a padded envelope. Right. You know, it's, it's just, it's just not the same. And again, like Craig said, it's very, alcohol is very highly regulated. Yeah. And, and, and the other part is because of the type of product it is, the, you know, the, the, the shipping becomes an issue you know, when you have extreme weather. So right. you know, we don't, we don't want wine sitting, <clears throat> going on a truck cross country, right? So it goes from the fulfillment center where the wine is stored, goes to on a temperature controlled vehicle to another temperature controlled facility where it's put together with other wine to either get on a plane or get on another temperature controlled truck. Again, it's not getting tossed on an Amazon truck and driven to your your door from thousands of fulfillment centers around the country. It's it's coming from one primary and being consolidated as it moves from location to location. Do you see major changes going on in the wine industry, either from your standpoint or from the distributor standpoint? I mean, there's so much production. I mean, you drive out to, you go up 395, you hit 395, and what used to be desert is now vineyards that, that are being irrigated. I mean, it's just like acres and thousands and tens of thousands of acres of grapes. Well, Except when there's a um, fire. <laughs> There's dramatic change. So let's take the direct consumer piece out online, direct to consumer. We don't have a tasting room, and that's where the majority, you know, that we said earlier, there's 11,000 wineries in the U.S., almost, almost double what there were two decades ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it just keeps going. Like there were between 20 and 2021, excuse me, excuse there me. were almost a thousand new wineries open. The majority of which never make it onto a store shelf anywhere near you or make it into a restaurant or make it into a hotel. They live and die by their tasting room. Mm-hmm. Right? So people come in, they hopefully sign you up as their goal to be in their, their wine club. That's not our model. Our model was to build out into the restaurant and hospitality side of the business. The, the, the change that's impacted people that utilize what we call the three-tier system, us, the producer, the distributor you mentioned, uh, Jeff. So they're a third party, you know, entity um, that you have to employ to get on the shelves or get into the restaurant in each market. And then the last part of the tier is where the consumer actually purchases on premise, the restaurant where you drink it or off premise, the retailer where you buy it and take it home. Mm-hmm. The most dramatic change since Lynn and I've been in the business has been the consolidation in that middle tier, the distributor side. When we first got in the business, there were 10 really strong, viable distributors in New York. Uh, now there's two. Now, there, what's happened over the last 20 years with all that consolidation to where most most markets only have three 
substantial distributors where there used to be 10 or more, there's smaller, you know, specialty spirit, specialty wine focused distributors opening up. The dilemma is though they also tend not to be superly highly capitalized and they take on more than they should early on. And, and so, but that tier, that there'll be people coming back because again, there's 11,000 wineries. They don't have the route to market. You know, it's again, the story back to South Carolina, and this was almost 20 years ago. You know, I had, we had to go down and and get the scouts ourselves to convince the distributor that we were viable and to take us on. Right. Right. Um, The one thing that is changing is, is this, the, the ability to reach buyers electronically now. There's a whole group of marketing firms that have have grown up around direct marketing to the trade. There's a new tier of distributor, uh, probably the most prominent model called LibDib, which was created by somebody from our background. The individual that founded uh, LibDib was uh, the daughter of winery owners and spent her life doing, you know, going out, banging her head against the wall, trying to get distribution through the traditional channel and decided it wasn't working. So LibDib's now, I think, in like 10 or 11 states. We we are not active users of the model, but we are actively considering it for states where we're fed up with the distributor and, and the traditional method. And they, right. they get the, the distribution license. They, they basically have, lack of a better term, a fulfillment center in those particular states. Right. And they have a model to go out and electronically introduce yourself to the buyer. And then eventually when the transaction is, is, is made on their website, you essentially FedEx or UPS wind to their fulfillment center, and but you cut out the the, the middle tier, if you will. Mm-hmm. So there are things changing. Yeah, not not fast enough for you know, small wineries like us, but right. they are changing. So, um, to, overall, what's your what's your favorite thing about being in the wine business, and what do you hate about being in the in the wine business? The, what I I can tell you what what I hate about the wine business is being the little guy. Yeah. It's it's always an uphill it's always an uphill climb. That that's what's really hard for us. And and when the pandemic hit, Craig said to me, "If this goes on too long, I can tell you what Gala is going to do because I worked there for five years. They're going to buy up everything they can." And they did. They mm-hmm. bought up all the bulk wine. They bought wineries. So the big guy just got bigger and bigger. And it just makes it it makes it hard. It makes it hard for the small guys. Mm-hmm. It makes it hard for the small guys. And and. You know, restaurants in particular, uh, restaurants and, you know, you know, on premise and retail, retail has to have, they have to have the gallows stuff. Yeah. They just have to. So it, it's really hard to compete at the retail level. That That's what's most difficult. That's what's most difficult for me, Craig. What would you, what would you say? I've been saying for years, I mean, at least 20 years, you know, the, the, the two best parts of the wine business are making it and drinking it, everything in between sucks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The the pandemic kind of accelerated some changes. It drove people back. Brands that had ceased to had stopped growing for a number of years, all of a sudden uh, were back in a growth cycle because people fell back to the kind of a meat and potatoes mentality. They well, I know what this is. They they ran from experimenting or grazing, as we call it, from label to label, wine to wine, and went back to some brands that they had known for decades, right? And and, uh, one of the things that Lynn said that that happened as a result of the pandemic was, if you had 12 wines on your buy-the-glass list, they went to six or they went to eight. There's been a consolidation back at the trade level, Mm -hmm. not so much the retail, but certainly in the hospitality side of the business, where the the trend was to have as many wines by the glass as you could, as many craft beers on tap as you could, 
they consolidated back and, and, and got a little more focused. So it just, you know, the, the number of placement opportunities has been reduced since yeah. you know, since the pandemic. And we saw it before. I mean, the, the 2008 financial crisis, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, they, it was the fastest de-stocking I had ever seen. People needed to convert to cash. And so yeah. inventory it, it ties up your money. You know, yeah. if you, you had 10, 10, 12, 20 single malts, you went to the the four that actually sold. And that's the pandemic kind of was a, the same thing, but it's elastic. It's going to come back. It's just coming back. It didn't help that we went from pandemic to supply chain issues to $5 gas to, you know, whether people want to say it or not, it, there's an absolute recession. We can see it in consumption. And sure. We see it in talk. We, you know, we spend our time, you know, where proverbial rubber meets the road with, with the trade and you know, right. restaurants, they tell us what they're feeling and what's going on. And, and I, we're just now really seeing the rebound. The labor market's finally loosened up, but you know, there, there's things that have changed that go into the cost of goods. I mean, you know, it used to be, I mean, for, for two decades, I used $5 or $5.50 as the cost of freight to move a, a case of wine from California to, to Miami, right? Or to Florida. It's, it, depending on the distributor, that's, it's double that now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there's you know, the bad impacts are, you know, of course. And, and, and price on, on wine is not as elastic as, as, uh, as some things you can't, you just can't move price up and, uh, right now. Right. I mean, there's, there's big, the big companies have the opportunity to grab share when, right. you know, when, they can when the costs go up. That's what they do. They, they, yeah. have, you know, you know, you do 70 million cases of wine, you can yeah. afford to make a couple a dollars less, less on yeah. a case and, sure. and so. grab share. So, yeah, obviously, from what you've been saying, if somebody would want to get into the industry, uh, what, A, would you suggest it? I mean, and then do you have to be a wine expert? Should you take classes? Um, well, you know, there's a saying in this industry, if you want to make a small fortune in the wine business, start with a large fortune. Yeah. <laughs> because it's an expensive business to get into. You need a lot of uh, you need a lot of cash flow to get going. And then you've got to figure out, going back to Craig's point about distribution, yeah. someone has to agree to sell your wine for you in that state. That's federal and, law. And they, don't, spot. and they frankly don't sell it. You have to go sell it. Yeah, and, yeah. And they say they take your brand on. They take your brand on. Everyone's all excited to have you. Um, but our biggest challenge when we leave a market, we were in South Carolina this week. Our biggest challenge is for those sales reps who we're working with on the street, uh, going to restaurants and bars and and you know all these wonderful places, is to get them to put our wine back in their bag when we're not in there. Yeah. When, when they're not driving with them in their car, and they've got thousands of products to sell. Right. Well, it's like it's like acting agents who are, submit 15 brunettes and I'm like, oh, you don't like this one here. Try this one. They don't care as long as they as they sell they something. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so, that's, 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 so we we wouldn't tell we wouldn't tell anybody to get, to get into no, the wine. I, 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 I would not encourage it at all. But it, but if, if we were to redo this model, it would be to I, we would build it to not utilize the three tier system. Yeah. It would be based on you know, direct to consumer and it would be based on tasting room traffic. I mean, the, the, the majority of these wineries, so if you take it like the top five wineries do more than half the total business in the US, wow. product, you know, sales and production wines, to, just to see how it falls off quickly. The next five, okay, so, you know, in the, in, within the top 10 of US wineries, number six through 10 account for only 9% of the wine sold. Wow. 
All right. So the top five have 50 plus percent, 52. Then the dramatic drop is in the next year. Then when you get below that, when you get from 11 to 20, it starts, it just falls away completely, very, very fast. Okay. So of the 11,000 wineries, five of them do more than half of it. So there's a lot of people that it's a, it's a, it's an ego play, mm -hmm. if you will. I mean, there's a, Napa is not remotely what Napa used to be, right. um, and and that's because of people that have made a ton of money somewhere else, doing something else, own a winery f to satisfy their ego. It's right. like people that eat in restaurants and go, man, I want to own a restaurant. They have <laughs> so no idea. It, it, that's not a business. It's a hobby. Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot of hobbyists in the business, in the industry, in the wine industry. And then there's a lot of mom and pop that, that are essentially selling it, not out of the garage, but out of the tasting room attached to their yeah. In the winery. Um, Out of their bathtubs. Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's a lot of very small production. I mean, it's scary. I mean, our production puts us up in the top 5% of, of, of wineries. And, hmm. yeah, you know, it, it sounds good, but it doesn't mean that the economics, when you really pull it back and hmm. look at, at, the, at the industry, it's, it's super concentrated in, in, a, in just a few hands. Well, hopefully we have done our part just to get your name out there a little bit more. And speaking of that, how do people get in touch with with you? What's your website address and stuff so people can order your wines? And I personally recommend, well, you've had their wines. I brought yeah, their wines. Great. Yeah, Yeah, they're uh, your, your Pinot's So fabulous. Yeah, so you can reach us at whisperwineco.com. Yeah, easy enough. And you have to There's, be 21. You have to be 21. Extensive yes. information on all the different wines uh, that we have. And yeah, it's it's uh, you, you and you'll see us. You'll see yes us on, on that there. on that uh, on that page, smiling with a glass of wine in your hand. It's very, it's, it's actually right. it's a That's it's a great right. shot. By the way, when I was growing up in Massachusetts, the drinking age was eighteen. Are there any states that the drinking age no. is eighteen? It's now it nationally it twenty one. Yeah. So yeah, so it was it was twenty for everything where I grew up in in Delaware, but we, right. we were blessed to be. Uh, within a, a short drive to Maryland where it was 18 for everything. Yeah. But what happened, uh, in fact, I experienced it when I, I went off to college at, in Chapel Hill. It was 18 for beer and wine, and it was 21 for hard liquor, and the state law changed. And I was grandfathered in literally by a week to be able to drink beer and <laughs> well, wine. Well, take it. Yeah. They, took, they were taking 18 for beer and wine up to 21 over the course of right. however yeah. many I, I lucked out there. But all that was driven by uh, by the federal government wanted a uniform right. uh, drinking age of 21. And so what they did was suspended uh, your highway money at a state level if, uh, you, didn't, if yeah. you didn't comply. And there was a period of time given for you to comply. Interesting. Um, and there were a couple holdouts. I think Wyoming, a couple Western states that had didn't have a lot of highway that they cared about, you know, that they needed the federal <laughs> No, no one came said, there. Yeah, yeah, they were like, hell no, we're not doing this. I think by 80, 1980 or 82, everybody was yeah. forced to be compliant. Yeah. But, but here's our one new thing, Ronan. Oh, yeah. Doing. Yeah. We, we popped the QR code on, on Riddler. Oh, that's, that's right. brilliant. I love right. that. So, but, then, but not only is this going on all our products, but we're exclusive for a period of time. We're blessed that family members who've made a fortune in tech have an AI chat bot, not chat GPT. Right. But, <laughs> but they've been in this for a while. And I've been, Lynn and I have been talking to them about they've focused on a different space. Right. And we kept saying this is perfect for the wine business because there's essentially a handful of questions that people ask about 
wine. Mm -hmm. right? Okay, beyond what's it taste like? Like, where's the vineyard? You know, what grapes? You know, right. you know, what does it pair with? And so you can you scan this QR code and you instantly engage in a chat with the bot that can research the questions, has a very quick response from everything. Does it go with pizza? You know, what are the grapes? Um, but we learned something very valuable in doing this. Uh, it worked perfectly in our uh, label mock-up. And then we got the first case and it wouldn't scan. <gasps> and we, we find out, you know, this is after we bottle thousands of cases, that most a lot of labels undergo a, a finish called a, a, a UV a varnish, essentially. Uh -huh. And you can't varnish it and, it and have it scan. So we're uh, now spending thousands of dollars to have this hand sticker. Yikes. But it's pretty. Is that, is that the one? Gets, is that one that works, Craig? Yeah, but it. Okay, it's so hold for, hold that up. Hold that up. If someone if someone takes a screenshot, they can actually bring it up. Bring it up. There you go. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So, I think that'll scan. So you can actually have a, an interaction, a, an interaction with it. It doesn't just send you to the. It doesn't send you to the website. Oh, it just, it just answers questions. But the other thing, from a marketing standpoint, which mm -hmm. is really cool, especially for big marketers, big companies, and, and we're the only ones with us right now because it's family that we're mm -hmm. going to get all the kinks out and then they'll unleash it on the industry. But uh, we capture your cell phone and oh. text marketing. There, from a direct marketing standpoint, less than half. The emails are, are open or engaged, right. okay? Whereas 95% of text marketing right. is open and engaged. The other thing is it's got a geolocator capability, so we know it's not to oh, be addressed. It's very sneaky. But you will know where you are. Yeah. You're in Scottsdale or you're in Miami. And then that opens up the door for a direct dialogue on an individual basis so we can send you know, marketing materials that are specific to where you are. Yeah. We can send them a coupon. We can send them a coupon code mm -hmm. for a discount, you know, on the wine. That's great. Uh, in, a, in, in a given in a given state, or we can send them a coupon code to buy from the website, mm -hmm. or and direct them to restaurants. Look, for example, you know, we yeah. just left right. uh, Paulie's Island, South Carolina, where there's X Y Z restaurant sells this wine. If you're in the area, yeah, go, go there. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. if you're you're in Charleston, because we're all over Charleston. Right. We were. Gosh, where where else were we this week? We we're in Myrtle Beach, Paulie's Island. Island, Charleston yeah. will be will be in Ohio in a couple of weeks. A great state for us. Big drinkers in Ohio. Okay. Love Ohio. <laughs> All right. Shout out to Ohio. That's where Dave Chappelle lives. Ohio. 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 So anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, this well, has. Um, are there any uh, any last questions? Or no, anything? no. This is great. Yeah, this huge, was this, huge deep dive into the wine industry. Yeah, thank you so much for this. Any last comments or anything you guys have? Buy our wines. <laughs> no, you know what? The, the the only thing that we didn't cover is that we are literally we are such a small company. It's just us. Yeah. It's just we are literally the only two people in the in the company. So we're a mom and pop, and um, and a, a, officially woman owned because you're fifty percent. By me, we've got four daughters. We are very pro women here at the Bogs, and you know, being such a small company and not having a big, expensive office, we are able to keep our margins tight, which yeah. other companies are struggling with now. We don't have a, a huge sales force. We don't have a lot of overhead that other companies have. Yeah. We both have offices in our house on separate floors. Yeah, and very uh, smart. <laughs> so we're able, to, you know, and, and right now people are looking for a value mm -hmm. because everyone's the cost of labels have gone up, corks have gone up. Bottles have gone up. The wine has gone up. Right. Like everything else, we all go to the grocery store. Everything's more expensive now. Right. And we've been able to keep our keep our margins really tight and keep our prices. We've had taken a slight increase, mm. increase 
uh, in the 2021 vintages, and we're we're seeing that play out well for us uh, in the market. Well, because your 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 wines are so wonderfully priced anyway, it's such a great value for yeah the and money. And, are, and I don't say that because I like the wines; I say because it it's true. We're yeah. really proud of our wine. Yeah. You know, we are, it's our really good. Pinot they're Noirs really are 100% Pinot Noirs and they're just, they're a great value. They are. It's delicious wine, great value. And a lot of people do want to work with a smaller company. They, they're tired of the big companies. Well, yeah, because you, know? you want to be, you know, I want to talk to the owner if I can yeah. to get what I want. So right. there you go. And we're doing that now. Yes, exactly. All right. Anyway, uh, this has been fantastic. So everyone who's listening has to go to whisperwineco.com and get some wine. Tell them Rona sent you. Won't get you anything, but <laughs> just tell them that, that will help. That is it for us. This has been Biz Souls. I'm Rona Lewis. I'm Jeffrey Hansler. Thanks for playing with us. Lynn Craig, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you all Thank next you. time. Thank thanks you. for having Thank us. You. Bye now. You've been listening to the Biz Souls podcast with your hosts, Rona Lewis and Jeffrey Hansler. Did you have fun? Subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Talk to you next week.